and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast about Jewish food. I'm Beth Schenker, your host, and I'm happy you're joining me for part two of my conversation with Sonnet Berniker Hart, the president of Koval Distillery, Chicago's first distillery since the mid-1800s. I want to get back to my conversation with Sonnet, so let me give you a brief introduction about my guest, and then I'll jump back in. Dr. Sonnet Berniker Hart received her PhD from the University of London and spent a decade teaching and lecturing in the U.S. and Germany. In 2008, she decided to focus on a different lifestyle, and she and her husband, master distiller Robert Berniker, founded one of the first urban craft distilleries in the U.S., Koval Distillery. Sonnet is also the co-founder of Kota Distilling Technologies, a distillery startup consulting firm. So you touched on this briefly. You were talking about, I think it was in reference to your parents being artists, and I mean, that teaches so much discipline and responsibility and all of that. But you haven't yet mentioned a different type of artistic endeavor for your products, which are your labels, and they're gorgeous. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those. Sure. I think that that's uh, in part because my sister received all of the artistic genes from my parents and she is our designer. So we're very much a family, family business. So my cool. sister owns a design firm in New York called Dando Projects and they had done fashion originally. But when we originally started our company, we did the branding, Robert and I, and we're, we're we're good at a lot of things, but not that. And so my sister was saying in the very beginning, you know, Sonnet, you really, really need to address these labels. <laughs> and, you know, every business goes through, I think, you know, some hiccups. And our original branding was, I think, a hiccup. And we were really lucky that I have just an incredibly talented sister <laughs> that, first of all, I... I listened to and that also then she decided to take it on herself to do the branding and uh, Dando Projects really did a lot to push the envelope of uh, liquor packaging and I mean our gin label has won awards all over the world every single actually competition that we've entered it into it's won and it's because it's such an intricate delicate label with a laser cut design that's embossed it's foiled i mean it's a piece of art it's and in gorgeous. fact it's even in a museum in italy Is so it really yes. oh my gosh yes for a packaging museum and they they wanted our packaging in the museum because they thought it was it was art and i think it is too so and i mean i feel that things are very important for two reasons one is is you know that they have sort of a a use that is um, very clear. You know, we make alcohol so that people can enjoy it. It can help them with celebrating all of life's great accomplishments and, and, and joys. But it has another purpose. I mean, it lives and exists when it's not serving that purpose. And, and that is how it appeals visually. And I think that uh, making things that both have a use and a beauty to them is really high art, and we're, we're very happy to pay a lot of attention to how our labels look and our bottles look, because I think that's a big part of it, too. Sonnet, could you also talk a little bit about the labels that are on your liqueurs, because those are also very beautiful, very different, but very beautiful. Absolutely. Those are actual drawings, and my mother, Charlotte Hart, did those. 
we, we convinced her to get involved too. And, and so she did these very detailed drawings of ginger and of rose hips and chrysanthemum flowers and caraway. And those drawings became the basis for our liqueur bottles. And in fact, they became the inspiration for a chapbook that she wrote called Organic Spirits in which she matched each one of the drawings that she did for not only the liqueurs that we have, but any liqueur we could have possibly imagined making. And she wrote a poem that went with it as well. So what we do is inspired a lot of art and poetry even. That's really lovely. Oh, I like that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit and, and talk about more about the whiskey product and the distillery and all of that. But first, could you give me the definition or or tell me the difference between whiskey, liqueur, the word spirits, because they all kind of blend in my head in one. I mean, all of them are spirits, and they all have a distilled spirit base one way or the other. A whiskey, there are many different kinds of whiskey, and of course, the definition really depends on where you are in the world. So, uh, you know... There are different definitions uh, for different categories, depending on sometimes geographical location. But in the United States, uh, you know, we have a rye whiskey, which needs to be 51% rye. doesn't need to be 100% rye. Our rye is 100% rye. But if there is a rye on the market, it, it needs to be 51%, at least in the United States. And then we have other whiskeys, general whiskeys, that are made from grains. So it's distilled grains, and then they're aged in new American oak barrels. And that's sort of a whiskey. And then a bourbon is also a whiskey, but it's a bourbon, which is uh, has a, a slightly different definition. It needs to be 51% corn, and the rest of the grains could be a mix, or our bourbon is incredibly unique. It's 51% corn and 49% millet. So uh, that's another thing that we like to do at Colval is use alternative grains and create sort of recipes for products that are also exciting and push the envelope of the whiskey category because a lot of the usual suspects sort of of grain, it's malted barley, it's rye, it's wheat, corn, but we also work with oat and millet a great deal and we feel that that lends a, a different character to the types of flavor profiles that we're able to get in our whiskeys. Now liqueurs in America, they need to have a certain percentage of sugar and so I think it's at least 20% sugar. I mean, you can go above that, but I think it absolutely needs to have about 20% sugar. And it needs to have a distilled spirit base, uh, but it could really be any base. It could be a neutral spirit base. Our liqueurs, however, have sort of a white whiskey base hmm. uh, because then that brings a little bit of flavor and aroma already to the table for whatever you're, whatever you're creating. So we think that that adds more depth uh, to our liqueurs and then liqueurs can uh, you know have I mean we've got a ginger liqueur we've got a chrysanthemum flower and honey liqueur rosehip liqueur caraway liqueur coffee liqueur so liqueurs are really spirits that have sugar and other types of flavor elements to them and uh, and a alcohol base huh. now gin is an interesting product it's somewhat related to the aquavits of Scandinavia but gin needs to have a juniper component to it uh, in order for it to be gin but our gin is unique in a number of ways so a lot of gins on the market just have an industrial grade neutral spirit as the base 
and then it's distilled with botanicals obviously juniper but other botanicals as well our gin goes through a much more elaborate process we start with a white whiskey base it's rye white whiskey base we macerate all of our botanicals with this base and then we distill the botanicals with this base and then what you get off the still is a very highly infused spirit that you know has a lot of sort of herbaceous or botanical elements to it that creates a lovely spirit yeah some of my favorite products of Koval are the liqueurs they're yeah amazing yeah, and yeah. all the and gin's great everything's great <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so if you were we're gonna try a whiskey maybe you're not a usual whiskey drinker right but you wanted to try something what are the things you want to evaluate when you're tasting various whiskeys and how would you approach that to have you know to give yourself some information about smell and taste and color and all that I'm sure those are all elements that you want to think about when you're going to select something Sure. I mean, I would recommend somebody come to one of our whiskey workshops uh, where we go into all the details about how the products are made and and what the differences are uh, in the whiskey category, how to taste them, what to look for. But ultimately, it's it's really about personal preference, what people enjoy drinking. Some people just don't know what they like because they really haven't explored the category uh, very thoroughly. And that's why I think coming to Koval, even, you know, for a tour and, and being able to try some of the different spirits, because sometimes people don't know if they like a rye or a mm-hmm. bourbon, or if they'd rather have something like a millet, which is a really unique, interesting spirit uh, whiskey. I mean, it's a great whiskey. Uh, so I really think tasting is important. Uh-huh. Um, you know, when it comes to the color, a lot of that is marketing. Our whiskeys, we don't add anything. There are no additives. There's no caramel coloring. But many of the whiskeys on the market have added color. So if you're lo- going based on color... Not a good idea. It's, it's not relevant because at the end of the day, many of them have caramel coloring in them. And it's not required by law to tell the consumer whether there's color in the whiskey or not. So... You're, you're safe with Colval. We don't add anything, but I can't vouch for any other brands on the market for what they do because they don't need to tell the consumer. So I think colors are relevant. I think that it's really about taste. I also think that there's a lot of marketing hype around age as well. I think that uh, that's also not always relevant depending on how the product is made. Sort of like different, you have to think of it, everything, you know, has a process and one can't just assume that because something's old, it's good. That's not always the case. Just because you're making pasta with flour doesn't mean it's always going to be good. It's how you're making it. It's what the proportions are. It's what your process is that also affects the end product. It's not just one aspect of it. And for example, for our process, being that we only use the heart cut of the distillate, which is the purest, brightest, cleanest portion, we... Uh, our aging period is about four years and we don't want to necessarily go beyond that because we don't need to in that we don't have tons of tails in our barrel that we need a lot of time to get them to mellow out Mm -hmm. um, so that it it becomes a good product our product is fabulous going into the barrel it's completely drinkable white as a white whiskey 
I mean, one of our most popular products in Italy is our white rye whiskey. It's sort of a white whiskey. And it, for them, it's an, a bit of an extension of their, their love of the grappa category. And because by itself, it has this floral component. It, it has that pepperiness from the rye. It's, it's just a really beautiful spirit. And that's what goes into the barrel. It's perfect as it is going into the barrel. And the barrel only adds other characters, other aromas, other flavor levels to it. Um, and we're going for a very clean spirit, very clean whiskey. So our process affects the end product as much as the grains affect the end product. And I think that there's a lot of marketing within the spirits world and consumers are starting to get a lot more educated about it and aren't being just fed lines that are irrelevant. I mean, my favorite silly marketing thing is this has been distilled 37,000 times or 20 times or 17 times or seven times. It does not matter. They could say it's distilled whatever they want because most of these, you know, for a vodka to use that as their marketing gimmick, it's really just about, it comes off of a continuous still. So it's just rotating around and around until they sort of take it off. And all vodka needs to get up to a certain alcohol percentage in order for it to be categorized as vodka, period, in the United States. So whether you achieve that in one distillation through a still that can, can achieve that, or you need to distill it twice, you're still getting the same result. It's just marketing. But they think it sounds good. And people, and people buy it buy it they're like oh this was distilled 12 times or <laughs> this one 20 times and it's irrelevant if you know the science behind it it's just marketing and there's a lot of that in the spirits world you've spoken a lot about the grains and um the research you've done and the farming and uh, farms that you choose to work with for your products is there anything special or unique about the equipment that you use in your distillery Absolutely. You know, as I said, we want to be involved in every aspect of this process. And that also means understanding the equipment that we use, understanding the still, the the tanks. And not only are we very involved in every detail of the still, but my husband helped engineer it. I mean, he helped adjust how the company that makes it go to Distillationstechnik is also the German company that made, manufactures the equipment. My husband worked with them to, you know, adjust how they make the stills so that it's better for our process. My husband also works with the, with the with the company and and with others associated with them to create automation systems for our stills so that we are never flying blind, so that we are able to see what the flow rate is, what the temperature is in the still, and also on every single plate. And that's huge because a lot of smaller scale distilleries, they don't have that kind of knowledge. And so what's happening while the distilling process is going on is a mystery in a way. They're not able to see if there are any temperature variations. And so then if they have a, uh, a run of the still, so to speak, that is incredibly successful, and then the next one, they think they're doing the exact same thing, but it comes out very differently. They won't know why, whereas we will. We'll know why. We'll say, oh, there was a, there was a flow rate aberration. This happened. We're able to collect a lot of data. So we even collect big data so that in five years or so, we'll be able to go back and see, wow, the grain that was harvested at this time of year actually has a better yield 
than grain from this time of year. So that we'll be able to use science as a way to better our process and to better what we're doing on the still. So, Well, that just makes so much sense. Absolutely. And I can't imagine trying to make an excellent product and working in the blind, really. Right. I mean, it's the same. I mean, you could, you, if you think about just a basic way in which we all do things like that, I mean, when we're making pasta, you know, it's like everyone has like sort of the style that they want the end result to be, but you, you kind of have to test it along the way. Sure. But if you had a electronic monitor in <laughs> your pot that was able to tell you that at right now, this is the exact way you like your pasta. You wouldn't be flying blind in the sense you wouldn't be able, you wouldn't have to like take it out or, you know, like t test it along the way. Oh, it needs another few minutes. But really there's the science that, okay, if it needs a few minutes, how many more minutes does it need? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's true for all manufacturing. And I think that what's great also about Chicago is that Chicago in general is leading an initiative to make smarter manufacturing. And that's something that's going on at UI Labs uh, in, on Goose Island. And I think these, this is the way forward for manufacturing so that people are making things and understand how to make them the best way possible. And while, uh, while we are still using the art of taste and smell when we're making our cuts for the distillate. So we're, we're not... It's not mechanized in that sense. We, we decide when to make the cuts. That's a very artistic thing, and it's about our approach and about the flavor profile that we want. But we understand what's happening while it is being made. And I think that that can help us create a completely consistent product, even though we're using single barrels. So, yes, we were very involved in, in the hardware, the software, the, the, everything. the everything. So we are very just grain to bottle and everything in between. What an amazing story, amazing company. So I have subscribers all over the world, and they can't all come and do what I did, which was take the tour and have a tasting or numerous tastings. So where can people find out more about Koval? And where can people, f um, how, do, how do they search out your product all over the world. Well, the good thing is, is that we are now available pretty much all over the world, which is incredibly exciting for us. So Koval's available in over 50 export markets. We're available throughout North America, and that includes almost all of Canada. We're available all of Europe, you know, with, with the small exception of Portugal. So if you have a listener there that's a distributor, they should certainly reach out. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure we'll, we'll get distribution there soon. We're in Asia, throughout Asia. We're in uh, China. We're in Singapore. We're in uh, South Korea. We are in Taiwan. So, I mean, little by little, we're, we're building our network all over the world. So I, I, I think that one could seek it out, but in knowing that we do have distribution in all these places, if one lives, say, in Warsaw or in Berlin or in Seoul, one could go to their distributor and say, I know it's here, so <laughs> get it into this store and I will buy it. <laughs> wow, that's just so amazing. How old is the company? Ten years this year. It's really ten years. Yep. So if somebody would have told you, maybe even five years ago, that you were going to be in, um, distributed in so many countries, would, would, what would you have said? For us, it's not about any one individual goal. It's just about the process and doing it well. So whatever 
milestones we we get to in our distribution or in you know in in getting this new facility i mean this is this was a huge milestone for us that now we have this whole building on ravenswood and that by 2019 we're we're going to consolidate our two locations and i mean these are all big steps and i'm sure five years ago if somebody were to say could you imagine but at the end of the day, I wasn't imagining that at all because all I was doing was concentrating on the moment, which is, I think, what we do here every day to make sure every day is the best it can be because then you reach milestones. Mm-hmm. And really, we're enjoying the process. So it's not necessarily about you know where we're going to get. It's, it's about how we're going to get there. It, this has been just great fun. And lastly, I want to let everybody know that we will have a special cocktail recipe from Koval that you'll be able to find on our website so you can join the fun in the privacy of your own home. <laughs> and you can find it on the website, which is thebigshmear.com. Shmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. And um, Sonnet, I just want to thank you so much for taking time to come in and chat with me about all things spirit-like. <laughs> My pleasure. My pleasure. And I want to thank everyone for listening to The Big Schmear today. Our recording engineer is Mary Mazurik, and our editor and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Be sure to check out thebigschmear.com to find recipes shared by my guests. If you like The Big Schmear, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and like us on Facebook. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy cocktails. Mm-hmm.